Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. All right, we are back here in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And today I have someone that I've worked with and have known now for some years, a uh, decade plus. And it's kind of interesting to think like, man, you knew somebody a decade plus. But yes, yes, yes. Someone that uh, connects to not just Detroit's community, but throughout Detroit. Michigan's community when it comes to diversity and inclusion and this is something that's gotten sexier I guess over the past seven years but understanding the concepts of diversity and inclusion and unpacking what that looks like if you're from the state of Michigan you're probably going to run right smack dab into what the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity and Inclusion stands for and means and one of the people at the helm of what happens there though he will always uh assist in magic johnson his own way say that it's other people that make this work possible mm -hmm. it's the man before me now steve how you doing today i'm blessed just got to keep counting thanks for asking yes sir all right so uh being here first let's let's talk a little bit about the michigan roundtable for diversity and inclusion uh and your connection to it uh we start most stories with the Detroit story and the Michigan story, but let's start that. What led you to the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity and Inclusion? Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Kari. Uh, you know, the um, it was the mid '90s, maybe '94, '93. I was working for the Archbishop, the Catholic Church. Thought I was doing social justice work, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. do, definitely doing some interfaith work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Roundtable had, you know, formed in 1941, had a long interfaith history. And so I was actually, on behalf of the Catholic Church, leaning on the roundtable, contracting with them to help us hmm. execute some community-building work. Next thing I know, the project ended. I'm hooked on this interfaith work. There's an addictive kind of principle at work. When you experience something powerful happening, you want to replicate what it was that got you there. And for mm -hmm. me, it was being, being spiritually intimate with Hindus, Muslims, you know, non-Christians, uh, you know, you name it. And... Uh, so while I kept working full-time at the church, I got a gig at the roundtable in 95, I think, 96, working part-time running interfaith programs. Okay, so let's uh, discuss interfaith. Let's not just go on assumptions. What's interfaith and what is interfaith programming? Yes, yeah, so um, it's interesting. So the roundtable, let me just go back. It was 1927. So what was going on in 1927? What was different about that in the history of the United States? Well, one, the... Ku Klux Klan was at its peak, mm -hmm. and you had immigration, high levels of immigration in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, and that really bothered the nativists, people who thought they were the original Americans, they were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and here comes all of a sudden, and so at nighttime they would go off and burn crosses, they would do nasty things to Catholics, to Jews, obviously, to black folk. But uh, when Al Smith decides to run for president in 1927, he became the first Catholic to do so. So they took, you know, in, in a way, when Senator Barack Hussein Obama ran for president, people felt they had public license to voice their contempt for Muslims and for him being black, right? I don't know if you, you all recall that, but there was some more public debate, whereas before people would just privately be I nasty. Think, I think it, it kind of was the, was the catalyst that, 
catapulted 45 into an international discussion over the whole birth certificate but discussion. You see, it's the same thing, right? Human nature is a constant, and it allows us to apply principles and to see things. So in 1927, the other were, were these immigrants from Eastern Europe who happened to be Catholic. So this, this cat declares he's running for president, and uh, they then uh, they take their hatred that had been voiced privately and make it public. They're burning churches. Actually, people were beaten and killed. And so this organization is formed, the National Conference for Christians and Jews. There weren't a lot of Muslims or others then, NCCJ, right? It mm -hmm. forms, and, around, and it booms. Like, there are 60 of these groups around the country, with Detroit being one of mm -hmm. them. We formed in 41. And so its beginnings were the harm being done to Catholics. They said we're going to fight bias, bigotry, and racism, but it was really dealing with individual acts of hatred against people because of their religion. Mm -hmm. We now understand that nobody should be harmed or excluded because of their identity. And Yusuf, uh, my dear colleague, will say nobody should be oppressed because of their identity. So as an organization, I'm, I'm sort of now introducing you to the fact that we have grown, right? We, we really have grown so much so that the name no longer fits us. It, it likely is going to become called the Michigan Roundtable for Racial and Social Justice, inclusive of the the space where we get to know each other. But that's just a Rodney King, can't we all just get along, right, to mm -hmm. a, a Martin King? Are you going to would you give your life for this, ultimately? Mm -hmm. Not that he ever said that, he just did it. So I've, I've thrown a lot at you. But that's the space, right? We're in the most hyper-segregated regions. We're the highest rates of black people in poverty. Um, we have got so many folks who look like me who don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. They do everything they can to be avoid being called racist versus trying to figure out what does it mean to be an anti-racist and uh and that's unique that you touched on that because yeah you're right calling a white person racist is like calling a black person the n-word like it is triggering and in the defensive nature of like by no means and blah 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 and and you know it's so unique when this topic comes up as people know like a lot of my homies are white you know and i look at it the only thing that kind of opened my eyes more to this is just looking at it through the lens of being a man and sexism. Like it's not, are you racist is to what degree into what, what faction that is. So like, uh, you know, the, the classic example, the, uh, the Donald Sterling, the, the ex LA Clippers owner, you know, it's like, Hey, I don't mind if you have sex with magic. I just don't want you taking pictures with magic Johnson. You know, and, you know, and then people are like, you know, perplexed because it's like, well, the NAACP supported this guy. He got so many awards from the NAACP. He was one of their biggest donors. He's one of the property owners that allow black people to live into properties when nobody else in L.A. was renting to black people. He owns a basketball team where he's made, you know, black men multimillionaires. But how is he racist? And it's like, well, we have to unpack that when it comes to this, that and the other. It, it, he he is i guess offering equal access and when it comes to the other things on this list he is very he has a lot of bigotry and, and a lot of prejudice and that makes some of the the challenge with race being in america so difficult because the painting of who is racist and what is racist often people think you know the ku klux klan or they think you know uh governor wallace in alabama but it can be just as simple as you know a person saying you know what we you know we need to just leave this neighborhood because i think my property values will drop because black people moved here which is an actual real life thing you know what i mean so 
how you define what racism is, knowing that we have systems that support mm-hmm. racism, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then knowing that we're complicit in these systems and that the basis of a lot of this nation, race has defined so much of this nation yeah. because it was the premise that these people could be enslaved or these people could be ostracized. You know, even the whole concept of whiteness, as you spoke of a lot of the Polish people here, a lot of the Jewish people here, a lot of the Italian people here, a lot of the Irish people here, a lot of the non-Germanic and non-English white people that came to America were ostracized, but they could buy into this yeah. I guess uh, buy into this idea of what whiteness is, which really is not. It, it, it's a concept that became prevalent because of racism in America, because it's like, hey, I do not want to. I'd rather just rid myself of being Irish and buy into American whiteness so that I'm not treated the way that my grandfather was treated when he first came here. You know, Cardi, there's so much you just laid down. And I got a little ADD, so apologize. But one of the thoughts that mm-hmm. we're seeing now is this anti-Asian hate, which mm-hmm. we know ties to anti-black racism. But these folk, uh, some of them, some of the folks, the model minority, right, they think in some ways that they, they may think they're white. And yeah. I've heard folks say that. And it's not doesn't come from any shadowy place. It's just coming into a complex world. They have no clue about the history of racism in America. But they know they don't want to be done like the black folk are being done. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're being treated that way. And it's like they can't figure it out. So, yeah, this, the complexity of race is something that the Roundtable is very interested in helping people understand. Mm-hmm. The depth, the 400-plus years, beginning with the genocide of our indigenous peoples, where Christian supremacy and white supremacy married each other and became yeah. a lethal way to extort, take money, do anything you could to, uh, to, to gain wealth. So mm-hmm. now, when people are against critical race theory— they're really against that firewall, whether it's the Constitution, whatever it was, it protected mm-hmm. their wealth. And so if they could just dismiss critical race theory, maybe reparations will go away. But, you know, so this piece on leadership that we're going to get into in a little bit, we're going to we're going to be talking about the role Dr. Clifford Wharton played as the first black president of Michigan State University during a contentious time in our history. Very much so. To the role uh, Dr. Carl Taylor has played. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's uh, this is not for the faint of heart. In the church world, I might say this requires psycho-spiritual strength. You all might say ego strength, but it requires someone to really really have a, have a good heart and an open mind to move from a place of ignorance uh, to a place of being an ally willing to, as I said, of Dr. King. Hester Wheeler calls me a white doctor, uh, Martin Luther King, and I said, Hester, why you do me that way? It's because we know what happened to Jesus. We know what happened to Dr. King, mm-hmm. and ultimately there's a sacrifice uh, one one preacher said to be a Christian, you got to look good on wood. But I mean, it's that sense. Do you, are you so committed to the other that you would you would give, you would it, sacrifice income, you would sacrifice reputation to be in solidarity? And and that's what I think. A Dr. Taylor is working on with his project, and we're so honored, you know, to be a part of that. I know you want to catch up a little about my so, history. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, just in the classic Detroit is different framework. I like to always give that, and I'm glad that you we were able to introduce this and. You know, sometimes, as we know, I can can get in my soapbox. That's why I have the podcast in the first place. You know, I got a lot of opinions and things to say. Thank God you do. But with that being said, you know, it it becomes heavy because like what you said, this is a very segregated place. Uh, When you think about the poverty that exists in Detroit and Wayne County, and then you compare it to the wealth that exists in Oakland County, and you even compare it like in other places, like what happens in most places where you have extreme poverty, you will see a little bit down the road. 
that's not existing. And you'll also see more people of color where that is existing uh, and unpacking this. And it's very uncomfortable for uh, for certain black people to see this reality, but definitely for white people, because, you know, to be labeled something as racist and how it's painted in the picture, mm-hmm. you're thinking, you know, most people are thinking like, OK, this is, you know, um, you know, I don't have a, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Nazi. I'm not in the Klan, but they're not understanding what's so complicit and just even the, the traumas that exist. Uh, you know, uh, like I, I often enlighten most men uh, to, to open their eyes to what sexism exists. Like, so when women say that, yeah, sometimes just being in the presence of a man can be triggering. Being white can be the same way being black. And it's, it's an understood thing. Like it can be triggering. Is it is it does it feel like, man, you know, you didn't even allow me a space and, and chance to 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 be an individual. Mm-hmm. But the system itself is so pervasive that it often strips us of even having the humanity to get to that point. Uh, and, and that's where this new project looks very interesting. A partnership between the roundtable and Michigan State University. Uh, so what's what's happening with this partnership? And this partnership is about leadership, yeah. which is a very, which is a very, it, it's a very, I want to say like, um, do I want to say uh, thought provoking, thought provoking concept? Mm-hmm. Because when we think of the leadership in this nation through the lens of how uh, his story is told, through the lens of what we call, when I even say the the white male idealism, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a white male. It's not Steve as much as it, it falls under the arc of this whole concept. Mm-hmm. And like when I tell people most of the laws in America were written for middle-aged white men so it, it, it's you know you got to read the constitution of this is for you if you own property and you own a business but the further you get away from that and and it was illegal for people that weren't white men to own property and businesses then the more that great document of the constitution is not applicable to you so and, and those were leaders that wrote this so when we think about leaders, leaders are whoever has followers. And it's a lot of misinformation. It's a lot of people frustrated. It's a lot of people at wit's end. It's a lot of people just not knowing what's happening. So they're following the voice and the urges because they're emotionally triggered to follow things that really, in my mind, are things that should not be followed. Full of hate, full of bigotry, full of full of uh, full of sadness. But they're drawn to it right now. So being that you, you have an institution like the roundtable looking to offer ideas in the leadership mm-hmm. is very promising and unique. So please open up and mm-hmm. share with me about what this project is and, and why is it keying in on leadership and why is leadership so important? So first, yeah. what is this project? Yeah, well, so this is a, a project that uh, Dr. Carl Taylor, uh, Detroiter, and a uh, internationally accomplished uh, academician, researcher, social justice guy. We honored him at the roundtable in 2019, just before COVID, along with uh, along with the brother from the barbershop. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm Mr. Uh, oh, my. I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting mm-hmm. right there on Windermere down from uh, 
Northwestern on the other side of, mm. oh my God, I am so sorry for forgetting his name. It'll come to me. Okay. But anyway, we honored him, and I, I went to Michigan State, did my graduate work there. My my son went there, and then both my brothers. So well, there's a lot of green in our family. So I always okay. was wondering, how do I give back to the university? And then here comes Dr. Taylor talking to me about a project he envisions on on global leadership, on world leadership, on, on, on community change, you know, the dynamism that it takes to really lead in a time of... Uh, a time of polarity, a time of turbulence, a time of great oppression to more and more people. It seems like this middle space is shrinking and more people are being, are being harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so who's going to lead in this time, right? So he lifts up Dr. Clifford Wharton, the first uh, African-American president at Michigan State and one of the very few uh, black presidents of a major college in the country. Yeah. And he led during the Vietnam War. He led during the civil rights disturbances. And he led with one of the key qualities as I as I work with police chiefs and mayors and corporate CEOs and, you know, trying to help them um, how to help them see the reality in front of them and then much less drive change through their organization and have impact. Uh, So it begins with what Dr. Taylor modeled and you will learn in this project is humility. You know, Yusuf talks about checking power and privilege. You know, there's an approach that U of M, the other school in Michigan, has called PODS, Privilege, Oppression, Diversity, and Social Justice. And it's this pathway to how do we get to racial justice. First thing is you got to become vulnerable. you gotta check, You got to check your blind spots. you got to make yourself in a space where you can learn what you don't know. You can see the racism within you, right? But in Dr. Wharton's case, he simply understood he's the president of the university university a lot of power and privilege yet he would go to these mass demonstrations where it was getting pretty wild and he would go amongst the students talk about making oneself vulnerable he put he put himself on the line mm-hmm. but the second piece about being a leader working to end racism and advance justice is we call it centering the voices of the marginalized or being present to those that are being harmed, whether it's a policy about the Vietnam War, whether it's the harm of racism. And we look at the George Floyd demonstrations and Black Lives Matter. But back then, it was following Dr. King for fair housing and equal rights. I mean, there was some stuff going on then. And so he went in there. He could have he could have been I don't want to call him the House Negro God. Forgive me for ever saying that. But he could have been a black guy leading in a white man's world. But he became a black man leading and not forgetting who, who, his, who his people, where he's from, who needs, mm-hmm. who needs help. Not just black folk, but gay folk. I mean, there's an intersection among how, who is hated. And if you are a woman who happens to be gay and black, oh, my God, Lord have mercy. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to live with. Shouldn't be. Should be celebrated. Our Native people back in the day, they called it the two spirits in terms of when someone was gay and they discovered it, they'd have celebrations like someone's confirmation or first communion. It would be we're celebrating that the creator in the Ojibwe language would be Kichimanatu has given us, has blessed us with this unique person who gives so much to our tribe. And, you know, then the colonizers came and brutally murdered everyone who was gay. And, and I know the Spaniards and they would they would have the flesh eating dogs. They'd put the gay folk in the pit, and they'd watch everyone would watch their loved ones eaten alive. They're trying to exterminate, if you will, the the support for gay people as well mm-hmm. as gay people. Crazy stuff. Sorry to lay that on you, mm-hmm. but in doctor back to Doctor uh, Wharton. So he showed how to lead during tough times, how mm-hmm. to listen to the people most impacted. And then I think the other piece, when you examine your power and privilege, when you center the voices of the marginalized or the oppressed, and then you create. Uh, a strategy based on what you heard, 
I was at a company uh, giving a talk in Grand Rapids, and they said, well, we don't do anything with LGBT people here. I said, okay. So I was talking about diversity. It was really weird. At the very end of the day, they asked me a question. Well, how, how can gay people bring their whole self into the workplace? And I go, you're asking a straight guy from Detroit when you probably got plenty of gay folk working here. And the, one of the poverties is you don't know who they are. And the second thing is you better find out so that they can help you solve the, that anyone's going to talk about how to be open and inclusive to people who are gay. You, you would ask the person who is gay to help you. So it's just creating a strategy with the folks that are most at risk of harm, whether it's black folks having an uh, oversight role or an advisory role with our local police departments. If they don't feel heard, it'd be like Livonia where they have to put up a billboard. It's saying racial mm -hmm. profiling ahead. I, I told the police chief, as a Dr. King said, rebellions are the language of the unheard. I go in Livonia, it's billboards, man. Save people to 2,500 and listen a little better. Mm -hmm. God love him. He thought he did the best he could, but just didn't have that leadership ability to really hear the other, not taking it personally, and then not just hearing, but then acting. Don't, don't patronize a black person and put them on a committee. No, let them run the damn committee and set the strategy for what the committee is going to do. And then the last piece about the leadership that I'll, I'll say that I thought Dr. Wharton exemplified, certainly Dr. Taylor does, is this accountability. Now you got to be accountable to what you heard. It's not just pat yourself on the back, you did something wonderful. It's stay, stay in track, keep tracking so what you heard is accomplished. You know, you, you, you kind of surrender the power you have. You kind of surrender the benefits you might have had from your whiteness to allowing uh, a gradual path toward justice. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, this can all be, um, this can be tough. This can be tough work, uh, especially being that the, the state of mind in some of the people that are oppressed. Because, uh, you know, the, you know, in Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, we can we can be so as people, you know, recognize the trauma. And that's a term that's more prevalent now. But we can be so traumatized that we're we're even unaware of of what can be so destructive to us because it's comfort in what has been destructive. It's 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 a comfort. We're, we're mm -hmm. used to this. You know, where we're, we've we've normalized things that can be so oppressive to us because these are the realities that we've just always seen. So, you know, being that leader that's willing to take that risk to say, you know what, I, I, I see where my where my police department is, you know, outside the lines here. But having that courage to be like, all right, I'm going to go against this this machine it's this the entity it's a blue code of silence it's a it's a brotherhood that these officers have it's a union with these officers have and and i could risk my position my, my family's livelihood by standing up for what i know is more humane and then you know we can justify things and it's like well you know he was on drugs or you know, I mean, look at the guy's record. I mean, if he didn't get arrested today, he probably would have got arrested tomorrow. Like it's it's these mental tricks. And I'm just using the police officer as an example. But in many facets, you know, did that guy really want a job? Poverty exists. I mean, you want to just get your, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. My family came in this country three years ago and we owned a business and bam, everything was happening, you know. And then you, it's like, well, you know, they weren't putting freeways through the neighborhood where your family lived. You know, you you were you were able to get a GI bill, you know, at this home I sit in now. And it took a lot. My, my grandfather was able to get a GI bill, but he had to. I mean, my grandfather had a lot of little game and hustle in him. But even with the GI bill, it didn't cover everything. So he had to rent out to one of his 
uh, and my, my, my grandfather came home war wounded. And that's what I think kind of led to. He came home wounded with one leg from World War II. Mm -hmm. And he got a GI Bill for some of this. But he had to rent out the basement mm -hmm. to another one of the uh, black soldiers that came back from World War II. They couldn't get a GI Bill as covering what the cost was being in this neighborhood right now that at the time was a Jewish neighborhood. And soon, probably like maybe like two years later, back to that whole living next door to people, Jewish people got the heck out of over here and moved far away. You know, probably not just Jewish people, but any anybody who's white who wanted to protect their investment that could. Right. But it, even that unpacking is so weird because no, Jewish people is. were here, yeah. but Jewish people couldn't live on the other side of, you know, on the other side of what we So yeah. they were the, the Jewish people, uh, white people, quote unquote, didn't want to live next to Jewish people. You know, hence we have yeah. uh, the beautiful yeah. Fisher building being built where it stood and like almost like a, 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 a a sign of disrespect towards the power structure that did not want to let a Jewish, a Jewish developer put a building downtown Detroit. So he was like, let me build the best building right here in what we call a new center. In Detroit. Every time I have these, have a conversation about race, another layer of the onion is peeled, uh, new insights that yeah. just, I, cause I never had to, nor did I really dig deeper into the black-Jewish relationship. I mean, mm -hmm. I, the pridefulness of this is you think you understand it, and I, I think we see leaders who haven't done the work, mm -hmm. who haven't been vulnerable and listened and, and, and made mistakes and stepped in it and kept digging. I think President Biden, when he told Cory Booker to, to apologize to him this summer, he said some things about, you ain't black enough. I mean, you could tell he hadn't done the work. And there's a lot of white progressives that just presume they got, they got this. I got this race thing. No, you don't. Every day you're going to learn something different. You just got to stay humble. And and, and then also, uh, like, I mean, President Biden is one of those unique, uh, unique talking points about like his leadership and his role as a politician, not necessarily his current administration, but just his political career and where he stood against uh, what happened with busing and where he stood lockstep with Strom Thurmond and mm -hmm. some of the strongest segregationists post uh 1950 ever. He stood line step with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then moving forward to end up being the vice president for Barack Obama, which I think was a political move because it's like, well, you know, I'm so black. I need to get someone that's white that, you know, is willing to partner with me. But that kind of eases the tension to say, OK, he's not going to go too black and too extreme because, you know. He's, He's with Joe Biden. So, I mean, Joe Biden will make sure he kind of reels them in like that was a political move. Like when we when we unpack this and, and just his presence of mind and even the presence of mind, as much as people say, well, you know, well, he won. He won the, the margin of victory that Joe Biden had in the election against Donald Trump, because I think a lot of Americans were just upset with both those choices was so slim that it shows the divide in this country right now and that that truly does exist. It's not like it was, you know, it's not like Joe Biden won by a landslide. Joe Biden won a very short margin of victory. Yeah, so Trump, it's a lot of people no. like you drive through Ohio, oh, yeah. even certain parts of Michigan. Mm -hmm. You see Trump banners. Yep. Very prominent. No, had Trump not. Uh, uh, irritated some mainstream Republicans, he, he would have gotten elected, but he just got, he just really, there were people who didn't want to associate with him. But you know, Kahari, the, what, what we saw in Michigan in 2004 mm -hmm. was the um, ban on affirmative action. 
And what we saw, and I think this is important to understanding the group of white folk that are acting out now racially, acting out and are problematic. But 83 counties in Michigan, right? In 2004, Mm -hmm. 80 counties voted to ban affirmative action. Think about that. The only three that didn't were Washtenaw, Ingham, and Wayne. Because you had both universities in in Washington. In Detroit. And then you got Detroit. But the white resentment, you know, the book on white fragility, okay, that's that's, that's fine. If that's the doorway for you to start thinking about things you hadn't thought about. But white resentment is dangerous. These are white folk that have felt that, you know, Ronald Reagan talking about reverse discrimination. These are white folk who feel like they've been losing out because of something black folk have been getting. And they continue to resent. And that resentment is growing. And so what 46 minus 1 did to borrow... Reverend Frederick Haynes's language was he <laughs> harvested that anger, focused it not just from black folk, anti-immigrant folks, anti-abortion you mm-hmm. know, folk. He pulled them all together. What's your grievance? But, you know, when he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, I mean, that's his private militia. He, he had those folks all juiced up, but they, 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 he didn't create them. He just harvested no. them. They've been in the shadows. They just came out. Uh, so that's the deal, right? That's the challenge is we face this deep white resentment. It is. 15% of the people are, are, are of the population, I think research is showing, are, are in that space where they have deep resentment. They don't like anyone who isn't a white Christian, right? Their kind mm-hmm. of Christianity. So we got, like you say, a lot of work cut out, calling for some strong leadership. And and, and I mean, when we unpack this in, in, you know, with my travels, I mean, I've been a truck driver. I've, I've seen some... Uh, I've had I've had some travels and I like conversations. So uh, with this conversation, I mean, there is a deep resentment, especially in a lot of the white males. I think I'm I'm 38 in the age range of like a white male, probably 45 to 25 has a lot of anger and their anger is misguided towards whether it be black folks or whether it be uh, women or whether it be you know, uh, Mexican people or, or many, many groups, because in my mind, it, it, and this is, it, you know, just watching it. And I've observed this and I often tell people this. It's like this is the first generation of white men that are less successful than their fathers in America. And facing a majority non-white. Future. But but just let's just stop it. They're less successful yeah, that's right. and their fathers yeah. aren't knowing some of them and their fathers. They rub it in like I, I know guys where their father comes around like, you know, your mom never had to work. A statement like that can bother the hell out of some of my friends right, right. because it's like you're basically, you know, you know, my, my kid, my grandkid doesn't even have somebody. You know, let me just go on and keep the grandkids. You know, a statement like that is where what triggers anger. And then, you know, I've shared this sometimes with my black friends and they just like, oh, they just got to live with it. And I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but that's definitely we have to be understanding of where a lot of this resentment in my mind comes from it's the fact that when they look at their grandfather their grandfather had the the probably like a second grade education because this is the system of white supremacy probably like a second grade education a a vacation home a boat uh another home uh was able to pay for like their daughter's uh the daughter's wedding uh was able to you know retire with a gold watch and drink all drink all weekend and, and come home with a pension and everything's cool probably the dad had something similar to that this the son right now the guy that's in my generation he's competing in a level of something that his father or his grandfather never had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And what in their faces, the black guy, the the white woman, which in a lot of this stuff, I think a lot of 
the gains are actually with two white women. So a lot of that affirmative action right. and diversity right. didn't come to black people. It, right. it went to white women. That's so right. it's, a, it's still a lot of anger there as well. Um, so this anger that exists yeah. uh, is 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 real. I'm not saying that it's justified. I'm not saying that it should exist. I'm just saying that I recognize and I see that anger that does exist. And that anger is stirred up as like we said. I mean, certain people, certain figures have stirred that pot. They know some of those triggering words. You know, they know how to how to place those messages the same way that it's an anger inside of of you know, a, a black man, it does exist, too, because mm -hmm. the system just doesn't give us so many options. So if someone speaks to that, they're going to touch us. You know, it's a reason why uh, the proliferation of of the acceptance of of what I call street culture or, you know, drug dealing and things like that is so accepted in the minds of us as black men, because it's like, OK, that's an opportunity that obviously you had to take because other opportunities don't exist. You know, even when we watch it in, in media and we watch it in film or television, we we've we already are complicit with this action existing because we 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 understand why, you know, we understand why the arc of some of these stories of uh, like when we even unpack television and media, like even like a story like Breaking Bad or Ozark. When we think of what those stories are, these are these are that's the anger of white men. I'm a I'm a in, in both stories. I'm like a. I'm a, a, a guy just trying to live for my family. My wife's cheating on me. You know, this one guy, my, my son is paraplegic. Nobody has anything. Nobody gives me something. So let me just go on and enter the drug game. But I'm a white guy and I'm smart enough to make crystal meth better than anybody. And I'm going to outsmart the Mexican drug lords and the cartel and everybody. You know, this is a fantasy come to life. You know, of like nobody respects me. You know, I got a home where I'm not respected. So I'm going to just turn to crime and finally be respected. That's the arc I think of Ozark. That's the arc I see of Breaking Bad. That's the arc of so many more of these stories of men, quote unquote, when they paint these pictures of these middle aged white men that are like wits in where nobody cares about them. Where now it's like, let me just take life into my own hands. And that was the embodiment of our last presidency, too, even though his story of being a billionaire and his grandfather basically walking into being a millionaire provided a lot of the the provisions that germanic people could be provided in land and property in the quote-unquote west coast you know like he took advantage of and exploited opportunities that many others couldn't take hence he had a leg up already and, and you know even knowing where the railroad town would be you know, I mean, the the the, the Trump family creating uh, all of the housing in Queens, knowing that, hey, all of, the, all of these Polish and Irish people moving here and black folks moving in. I know that white folks ain't trying to live next to them. So let's create a suburb and let's have the state create these bridges to connect people to the suburbs to get out of the work in the city, but get out as fast as they possibly can. And I will become rich off of this. So it's that's the other layer and wrinkle in this, that it's money inside of racism. It's 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 created a a a a, a whole uh, you know that the it's an underlying economy and industry yeah. you know what I mean so it's not black and white it's green and even the yeah. corporate some of the corporations after George Floyd they started to at least talk the walk or you know get into it but it was because of it was because of their financial position and their investments I think for a lot of them some are really serious but no it is green. 
You're straight. You're, I think you're spot on. And even being serious, you're going to have to take the risk of basically saying we may lose out. We we may we're going to you know, we may we're going to lose out because we're we're we're, put, we're implementing processes and procedures that are not focused on the bottom line of making mm-hmm. profit. We're implementing things that are focused on humanity. So anytime you're making that step, it's going to be tough. Well, I think if it's like Patty Poppy was the head of Consumers Energy mm-hmm. and she was she heard from her colleagues who were gay and she raised the pride flag in Jackson, Michigan, over that Consumers Energy plan wow. uh, and took a lot of heat. But she stood strong. And you know what? That people who really understand this diversity, inclusion and equity, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. But there is a positive correlation to financial gain if you do it right. Right. I mean, if, if, I mean, people appreciate an authentic leader, but people also appreciate when they can see the connection between, you know, doing on the golden rule. Right. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But but it's tough. And if it's not done right, if it's done clumsily, it will blow up in their face. And there's a cost to be paid. There's a cost to be paid when you stand on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized because they got put there for a reason. Mm-hmm. True. So uh, this project, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of going back there that we said what it is. Who's going to be involved? Who will be the people that will engage in this program? That's a great question. You know, where the roundtable is there to help give it legs and help more people understand authentic and dynamic leaders like our first leader being focused on Dr. Clifford Wharton. Uh, Dr. Taylor, who is the sort of the producer, if you will, of this project, has a range of leaders who have demonstrated the very point we were talking about. How do you lift up those that have been excluded or harmed because of their identity, be it racially, religiously, gender, I mean, all the different ways we can marginalize someone that you should not be harmed because of your identity. In fact, as our native people did with their gay uh, members of the tribe, to celebrate that uniqueness and incorporate them in your team so that you can be successful. I mean, how long did it take Michael Jordan to win with the Bulls? Seven years. How come if he was the greatest of all time, didn't he start winning automatic? He had Scottie Pippen. He, but was it that he finally got John Paxson? John Paxson by himself was kind of not that much. He hit, hit some shots with his eyes closed. But my point is, it takes a while to get to a place where you have an organization that is firing all cylinders. There's a complementary among you. You know what you need to be successful. But you aren't going to be successful as a racially homogenous group. I mean, Dr. Scott Page at U of M has, in his book, The Difference, revealed that diverse teams outperform homogenous team every darn day. So who are the leaders that are doing this as political leaders, you know, mayors, police chiefs, corporate leaders. And so Dr. Taylor will bring those to the table and the round table will keep lifting up those good stories. Okay. So this will definitely be for people in those leadership positions and, and provide, I'm guessing in the program, they're going to get like tools. What, what are, what would a, like, let's say I'm a mayor of a city in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Mm-hmm. What am I going to get by engaging in this program? Good, good question. You know, so on the one hand, Dr. Taylor wants to bring to the table people who have exemplified and modeled what does it mean to uh, lead in, in polarized times and diverse times? What does that look like? And then the roundtable as the partner organization over our 80 years have developed a host of ways for people to develop the skills, mm-hmm. right? We've done that with corporations. We've done that with, with a lot of people. Are we? You know, The old term of it was diversity training, then cultural competency. Now it is just that continuum from honoring your diverse talent 
to really moving to un unearthing the racism that dwells within your organization, right? I mean, the white supremacy is baked into everything. Police departments, churches, everything. It's not, we're not picking on police. It's, it's, the, it's the consequence of yeah. what I said 400 years ago of the Christian privilege and the white privilege marrying together. So how do you see it? How do you see it in your policies and your practices? How does the Michigan Roundtable see it in how we've been developed? And then how do we then take that lens and look at how we engage the community? Not bring a new trauma to folks who've been marginalized, but yeah, I don't want to say liberation, but a way to really celebrate and bring out of the bondage that people have been put into so they can be fully, fully alive, man. And, and, and that's one of the things where I always push back and, and, and have trouble when I think about diversity and inclusion, because so much of this stuff that we talk about, it's, it's cultural more than racial. Uh, because the culture exists. The race is, you know, and I guess you could also say culture, but race is way more of a social construct that we've 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 created. And, and it's a reality here in America. With that being said, culturally, uh, one of the examples I use, uh, I remember I was a part of this one project and we were meeting down at the Renaissance Center. And anybody that knows you, you do a meeting in the Renaissance Center, you have to go through like maybe two or three security checkpoints. And I'm like, okay, we're if we're connecting with my community, we've already disconnected so many people like me because just by crossing three security guards and I'm parking downtown, I'm I'm it culturally is disconnected from me. And many of the people like me. So like how do you culturally make it the same way? The same one of the examples, another example I use is like, you know, if if to get a job, you had a breakdancing contest, uh, white people would be like, well, what is this? You know, black people would be like, all right, cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know? <laughs> but it's like, but culturally, that's what we do. And that's so many of these systems are designed, like I say, for middle-aged white men to be most comfortable. Mm -hmm. So, like, how do you culturally even encourage people in leadership positions to have those spaces and places to know that, all right, culturally, they do think, we, you know, you have members of your team that do things this way. So we need to maybe look at lunch differently. We maybe need to look at, um, you know, vacation time differently. We may need to even look at the way we call a meeting differently. You know, Robert's Rules of Order, if anybody knows that, that's damn near parliamentary. You know what I'm saying? I mean, parliamentary procedures. That's definitely not culturally something that is in my neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? It's not that complicated in a way because what we need to be complete and whole is in our midst and amongst us. Mm -hmm. If you, if we don't go back to that pods approach, the power and privilege, yeah. looking at oppression and moving to the diversity continuum, if you will, and then racial justice, but it starts with checking yourself and then listen to the people that you're that are amongst you. And then you're gonna learn things you would have never had a clue. There was a mayor in a city, uh, all white city, 86 black folk in this mid-sized city. And it looks that way because it's supposed to look that way, right? There was a clerk in that city who said some nasty stuff about black folk and Muslims. She was let go. And then the few black folk that live in that town start telling the mayor what life is like in that city. All white city council, the mayor's got a good heart and he's like traumatized he's like, or scandalized. He goes, oh my God. I thought everything was fine in the city. Well, because for you and me and others who live here, everything is fine. But once he got that disruption, right? That dissonance, the gift that keeps giving, he was able to start, okay, if I'm a good man, I'm wired right. How do I move from this unconscious incompetence, this blissful state like things are well, to processing this new information and getting to this unconscious competence where you just follow the Nike slogan, as I'm sure you just do it. You automatically default to doing the right thing in your organization, in your neighborhood. Yeah. But man, it begins with 
checking yourself and listening to the folks in your place who, who might not like, uh, you know, who might not feel comfortable coming to the Renaissance Center or whatever example you gave. Yeah. There's no shortage of them, but the answer's there. It's right in front of us. I, I, I do think that. And then sometimes that discussion is, is it's going to be a series of discussions too. Come on. Because that first discussion is like, is this real? Or like, is this, you know, like when people say like, man, you live in the hood. I feel so comfortable here. I get nervous when I go to neighborhoods that people say, like anytime I think it's labeled as good, I think it's not for me as a black man. <laughs> it, like just period. If you say it's a good school system, I say, okay, if I put my kid there, I know immediately they're gonna say, oh, you know, he has discipline problems. You know, if I move into this neighborhood, you know, with the cul-de-sac and stuff like that, I know immediately the HOA organization probably amongst first day, they'll probably give me a cake and then they'll say, all right, we're just going to let you know the types of dogs you can have here and, and the types of grass you got to have. And then I'm thinking to myself in the back of my head, like, are they telling me this because I'm black and they be a racist? Or are they telling me this because they tell this to everybody? And now I got to think, okay, now do I ask my neighbor, hey, did they tell you that you can't have a Rottweiler or a pit bull and that your grass got to grow this much? And when Christmas comes around, you got to put up this type of lights and this type of ornaments and we all buy into the Harvest Fest over here. And if I don't, then basically they're going to uh, put fines on me and the HOA fees and then I'm going to end up uh, going on my taxes and then I can end up getting kicked out. And I'm telling this story and I know people are looking like, huh, this happened? It's like, yo, this has happened to people I know. And just living in Bloomfield or Farmington, or places that I think are designed not to have black people. Well, when black folks do come out to uh, suburban second ring, third ring, white folk get nervous yeah. and they find ways to resegregate. And I think yeah. living in Plymouth, Canton area, one of the chief ways we've resegregated the suburbs is charter schools. Plymouth, Canton has six charter schools. It's because yeah. the racial fault line is now trembling. Right? But I think that the, the schools, to me, that's the new red line. Because Thanks. the only thing that a uh, that a real estate a real estate agent can't tell you a lot, but one of the things they can tell you is it's a good school system. And let's mm -hmm. just straight quick blank say it: any good school system is has very limited black students. The more black students that are in a school system, the worse it's going to be, and the worse it's going to be because the testing, as we already know, is already racially biased. The resources mm -hmm. are racially biased, so they'll get less resources. So you get less money. You, you, you have a test that's designed, like I say, it's not designed for black students to even understand. You know, the, the storyboard problems aren't aren't even close to what you're saying, not even with the names, you know, uh, with, with what you're saying. You're disconnecting already. The testing and the enrollment, you give less money to the school system. It's not funded. It's not given to. So basically, you know, the real estate agency is like, yeah, it's a really good school system here. And that's i.e. black folk ain't around here. No, there's ways that they... Uh speaking code yeah i mean you go to a school board meeting out in the suburbs you go to a city council meeting and the uh, code talk oh my gosh and how do you help people help people see that it's really again it's hard work we're in one community and uh some leaders of the city were talking about weaponized white privilege now i had to i had to stop before i wanted to tackle the person we had two women of color facilitating so that's what's because in the afternoon session, a few folks said the same thing, like that must be what they're talking about, the water cooler. So they resent the fact that white privilege is being put at them and they use the term weaponized like black folks are using white privilege to come on against them. Yeah. But, you know, we a skilled facilitator will allow someone a safe place to drain the wound or to spew out their stuff, even if they don't agree about it. But if you feel respectfully listened to, even if you don't realize you're, you're talking smacker, uh, you're more likely to moderate 
to, by, by being by hearing the voices of the other because you've just been treated well. But it's, it's going to take a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah. But I think it begins, who has the strength to hear someone who doesn't have a clue of what they're saying? Yeah. But it's, 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 so it's hard work, but it begins, I think, with relationships. It begins with folk who look like me, hearing from my colleague, uh, Frida, who, a black woman who talked about every morning I wake up, I realize I'm a black woman. I never woke up and realized I'm a white guy, right? Yeah. And then she goes, I go through the day and there's maybe a hundred to a thousand microaggressions, like paper cuts all day long. And I have to decide, what do I have the strength yeah. to even and, and, deal and, and, with? And what do you want to address? Wow. What do you not want to address? I mean, to me, I usually make jokes of a lot of this stuff, wow. but it's little things like that. Example I use is very real. Like the, the you know, what type of dog you have in this neighborhood? You know, the HOA fees coming up. Mm -hmm. The, you know, you, you do a, you know, you do a birthday party for your, you know, for one of your kids and, you know, somebody calls the police because of a noise complaint. You know, because culturally, to me, that's just a, we would never do that in our neighborhood. But that may be what my white neighbor does to the other white neighbor. But as a black person, I'm thinking, you know, it's it's triggering, you know, because culturally we're not in a neighborhood where like if the people are too loud, we're from a neighborhood where we walk down the street and we say, hey, man, I got to not only like I got to get up and go to work tomorrow, but it's cool. But then we may even go a step further to say, uh, you know, let me give you some charcoal or some money on the charcoal, so maybe y'all can pick up and go tomorrow or something. Like it's it's more it's more community, mm -hmm. and that is one of the biggest differences when I think of the whole concept of of the cultural differences in whiteness and blackness, because mm -hmm. we're we have more of a communal uh, cultural dynamic, whereas America's based on rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. Is is based on being an individual. It's based on this is mine, and even if you family, technically that's still yours. Whereas ours is collective. Yeah. You know, we we yeah. want we want a collective. We want usually, you know, well, I'm generalizing here. We want a a our, yeah. our family, our friends around, our block. We like the block party dynamic and yeah. things like that. You know. You know, it, it is what you know. A lot of white folk who are Christian, they are. Their leader was a communitarian, not an individualist. And so, while they're preaching, while they're talking about that stuff, or not talking about in it, the in dogma, yeah, on and service on Sunday, um, they surely aren't practicing it. And the rise of, of the mega churches are, are more reflective of perverting Christianity. God forgive me, but it is more. Uh, the gospel of prosperity, right? The more yes. wealth you have. So they want to, even if they don't have money, they want to go to a church where other folks have money to be associated and network. So maybe they can do their gig, their whatever their business is. But as I said earlier, to be a Christian, you got to look good on wood. And where's the sacrifice? When you follow Jesus, you follow him to the cross. If you're Christian, I mean, every tradition has its pathways. And having done interfaith work for some 30 years, I'm aware of the commonalities, but they all have their story. So no harm meant to our non-Christian listeners by going to Jesus twice, man. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but what you're saying is real. So that that's where like even understanding like how we view things. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Like when when people talk about the foundation of what America was, I'm like, you know, the there was no word for for ownership in the native tongue or the African tongue mm. or in a lot of the Asian tongue. So when you said I own this land, it's like, huh, what are you talking about? You know, like it's no concept for that. Like we can't we can't even translate that because land is nothing to be owned in a lot of the native cultures that we were in. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you're, you're the cultural differences in some of this as, you know, the history of Europe land 
ownership mattered a whole lot more. I mean, it's not as uh, abundant in the resources of, of fruits and, 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 I mean, habitable for people. So, yeah, you know, if you're in, you know, if you're in certain parts of Russia, you know, in, in God knows what, like year 700 AD, yeah, it, owning land needed to matter. But if you're in Africa, if you're in places where fruit's falling from trees, you it, it can culturally make it more commu- more community. And, yeah. and this is calcified over the years because I think our people and other people that have come into America, even white people themselves, have taken this distorted, perverse view of what this rugged individualism looks like for me. And that's where the anger comes. You know, that's where a lot of this resentment comes. So to know that uh, leadership is going to be uh, presented uh, in this form. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on my soapbox more than you in this interview, but uh, that that's, that's very, uh, that's very, I'm very interested in this project, yeah. especially with the work of Dr. Carl Taylor mm. for years of understanding uh, what, what the black experience, what I call like a hood experience is like, and the variations of even what that hood experience is for different people. Uh, it, it, it will be, um, it will be eye-opening for many yeah. people. And I hope that a lot of the leaders also uh, are willing to take on the, the the long strides and the dynamic changes. But sometimes the change can just be as small as like what you say. Opening up and having that conversation with that one person that you didn't know. It's like, hey, man, here, here, are, the, here, here are the HOA rules for our condo. Can you look at these and tell us like what, what do you think would make black people more interested in moving here and what are some of the things that make black people say okay this is not the place for me and my mm-hmm. family a statement like that can move mountains yeah you know I, I i appreciate your interest and you know you have a lot to say so i could be interviewing you because of your life experiences and your passion the things again that the leadership series dr taylor will present to us and we'll keep we'll come back and talk to you about it but you know one of the things i keep going back to one is a line from this Mother Teresa, the wild Albanian sister who went down to Calcutta, but she said, the creator doesn't call us to be successful, but does call us to be faithful. And, you know, for me, you know, it's my destiny. I grew up with my dad cussing Cassius Clay at the time and grew up in the Livonia, the largest white city, right? I mean, I, um, my dad also was abusive. And uh, so I was raised to be a bigot. Uh, 10th grade football, 71, called my dad, told him I tackled the black kid from Belleville, right? Why did I do that? Because that's I was seeking his, his favor. I wanted to Man, now I'm leading the roundtable, right? So getting there, we got to stay, we got we got to keep at it. It's like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. If it comes down, you roll the boulder back up the hill. That's it, man. We just got to keep hammering away. And at times we get support from colleagues like yourself. Well, thank you for that. And I also think that even with that story of your father, to unpack and understand that it's, it's a sickness. So I'm not necessarily saying that, like, if your father was around, I want to, you know, I guess, you know, in the class and have a beer with him, per se. But I'm also understanding of the consciousness of who that father was. Yeah. You know, uh, when we think of all of those Confederate statues that exist down mm-hmm. south, the reason why the, as I said, the, the wives and mothers of the Confederate Army wanted to erect all these statues was because they saw in their men. Uh, a a sense of defeat, a sense of peril. Mm. And they said, these statues can be used as signs of inspiration that make you still feel like you have the the courage and you're a man and you're somebody that we love and adore. So like, it's it's not to demean per se who a person is, 
but it's demeaning the corrosive behavior of what they do. And, and that needs to, I, I think I'm, I'm specifically speaking to whoever, you know, the white, my white viewer is because it, it exists. Yes. You know, it definitely exists. But it's not like your great, 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 great grandfather is somebody that is like, OK, kill him. And it's definitely going to be some black people that will say that. I'm not feeling that way. I feel like your great, 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 great grandfather was sick. They didn't understand what yeah. it was. They didn't understand that 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 their hatred towards people that look like me and my yeah. family is misguided in the first place. No, it, it was. And, you know, it, racism is so complex. Bigotry is so complex. On the one hand, my dad's anti-black racism that he first discovered in World War II when he came from northern Minnesota where there were no black folk. And he's in the Navy in World War II, and the black soldiers, many sailors, many of them, did not come from diverse communities. So they were they got past adolescence now. They're adults in their peer groups meeting the other. They clashed. And my dad just sort of, there are other predictors of who becomes racist or bigoted. But the complexity of this is my neighbor uh, was from India, and his son was a state, the head of the, he's a state senator, state rep. He was a very popular rep. But the, I met the, with the gentleman. He's now 70-some years old. He goes, your father treated me like so, oh, my God, he got all this anti-black stuff, but he treated the guy from India. He didn't see his color. And that's. And that oh, my God, I the, wept because I had yeah. put my dad in a box. But yeah. I knew there was some goodness, but it was this misguided thing, the white-black thing, the resentment when he was at Ford Motor when equal opportunity uh, or affirmative action came. And he said, yeah. she doesn't even know the alphabet, my secretary. And like, I, I'm sure there was a whole lot more to that story. But somehow it went into his narrative. Yeah. And I think once we lose folks, it's really hard to bring them back to see things differently. Took a heart attack, but I think the last 10 years of his life, he was seeing things a little differently. But everybody's on a journey. And um, yeah. I'm glad to be on it with you, Kari. And that's and that's beautiful. And, and, and like what you just said is, is like I say, because it's less it's hard to answer. Just like as a man, are you sexist? It's hard to answer just yes or no definitively. It depends on the issue, you know, depends on what 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 it is. And I think racism is the same yeah. way. You can be a lot of oh, like as people say, like, what's the difference uh, with liberal racism? You know, because it's <laughs> right. a lot of liberal racism. And I look at like, uh, I guess, conservative racism is like, look, I just don't want black people around. Liberal racism is like. I don't want black people around because they're miseducated, they're mm. misguided in the, in the unfortunate values. circumstances mm. that they went through. But basically, it still gets you to the same point. I don't mm. want to live next door to a black person because probably he grew up in poverty and yeah. he'll be dealing drugs next door to me. And I don't want that it's next crazy. to my kid. But it's still the same outcome. Right. So it's not, it, it's less about what exactly, you know. It, it, and then some of these things you don't even know exist until you're face to face with it. When when a black man wants to date your daughter, when 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 your uh, when a when a black man now is your boss, when when a black woman is you know the uh, the person the determining factor, a judge, and you got a DUI, when like a, you don't yeah. even know when a black doctor saves your life. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't know what would be triggering until you're in that situation where it's like, damn, I guess I am. I, I, yeah. it's, some, it's some bigotry here right here. It's some Come prejudice. It's, it's some racism in this instant you know, as though I right. didn't know it existed you nailed until it. you're there. No, you nailed it, Gary. And I hope in the work at the Roundtable and with this project that we can help people come to see, yes, not I'm a racist or I'm a sexist, although one could say that. Yeah. Or I could say racism, sexism. You name it, dwells deep within me. Yes. I am working to become anti-sexist, anti-racist. I am on that journey 
Every day I'm trying yes. a little harder. Join me. I think if we can get more people to say that, we, 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 could, we could get a little running start on this this journey, this long race. <laughs> what you just said is the, the beautiful uh, concept. Just like, you know, the people that I know, and, and I give power to all the people in my family that have struggled with addiction and overcome it, but they'll still always say, I'm an alcoholic, but I haven't had a drink in 20, 15, you know, 30 years. So it's still there. But they they they're doing the work. And yeah. I think that that's how we have to see this. And even being black, and, and it's like, how can a black person be racist towards black people? Because it's the system that we're in. We're still seeing it ourselves. It's black people that don't want to live next door to black people because of the same things yeah. that white people would. Yeah. I think the racist term, I think you're yeah. right, it's a prejudice and bigoted. Racism well, implies a lot of power and class and biblical harm. But I mean, once we, to the earlier thing I mentioned, yeah, once I think yeah, once we say racism dwells within me, then you don't have to worry about someone calling you racist because you say, true. no, you know, I'm not racist as much as I'm working to be an anti-racist. So you don't have to fear that anymore. I'm sorry yeah. for interrupting you. No, no, no. You're really I laying mean, it down. And when I say... When I say that, I mean, because usually a black person in that privilege is probably from that privileged position that usually has that stance. I see. Solidarity you know, with the, the, the oppressor. Because, I mean, so like when we look at like a guy like, uh, you know, Lord knows, I mean, you don't want to give him too much shine. But, you know, Larry Elder it just was running for governor in, in California and some of the, the rhetoric he can spew and, and the whole concept of reparations needs to be given to, quote unquote, enslaved masters <laughs> you know like that even though he's a black man like to me it is sick and it's corrosive yeah. but he's been given some of these advantages because right. he can be a like a tool that can that can be a platform to say certain things that uh, that can be uh shared amongst and believed in mm. so mm. Uh, so yes it's very rare because racism does take a power position prejudice yeah. is just being bigoted without it, no. but it still can exist in being in the system. Or yeah. you can even be, you know, like, you know, it, it's tough. Like being a police officer, just knowing the foundation of why police exist in this country and, 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 and how our justice system works, you know, in, in every institution. That's why, like, you know, when people talk about, you know, health systems, education systems, justice systems, monetary systems, financial systems, like if it's an institution in America, and you're black, just know that the origins of that was not designed for you. That's true. Wow. Yep. So, yeah, we can um, we can definitely park it there. I, I look forward to picking up this conversation uh, with Dr. Taylor and, uh, you know, finding out more. But before we even go there, uh, when does it start? When will it launch? What what What's going to be like, the I guess, the grandiose <laughs> event of getting down before, you know, more of the work, you know? Yeah. Dr. Taylor imagines uh, later in October to really busting out in all types okay. of media, you and your Detroit's different platform being one of many. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a robust launch of this project later this month. Okay. Look forward to it. This was a great discussion. Look forward to getting Dr. Taylor here to, uh, to share his story. Uh, this was definitely a different type of Detroit is different interview, but I am going to ask you one of the classic Detroit is different questions that I always end interviews with. Uh, well, no, we'll, we'll take a gander at all three. We'll go at all three. So your very first car, year making model, what year did you get it? Oh, that's great. So it was the spring of 79. Mm -hmm. It was a Ford Fairmount, and uh, dad, dad, uh, you know, signed for it, and I had to make the payments, <laughs> and so okay, that was it. 
Fort Fairmont. Okay, so what color? And uh, gray. Okay, and let's see. And, and I'm, I'm pulling this up now. I never even heard of a Fairmount. Okay, so I'm looking at it. It's, it's one of those boxy rats. It looks like it's real metal. <laughs> it's Lincoln Mercury cousin. I think was the Zephyr, but they were, you know, how Ford and Lincoln Mercury kind of had partner cars. Yep. Yeah, so, it was a sedan, man. Okay, okay. <laughs> Red velvet interior. I was, wow, man! So you look were, out. you were, uh, yeah. you, you were, you were, you were big man on campus. Oh, uh, well, well, yeah, yeah. No, I had to pay for it. That's the only thing. Right? <laughs> you were a working man, <laughs> but well, do you remember the first place you drove when you got it? Now that's a great question. Probably had something to do with girls. Yeah. So. Uh, or to show it off to my buddies okay. and then go see some girls. In okay, either A or B, yeah. a combination. I don't remember specifically, um, but shortly after I took off for California with it, I took a long road trip, had to stop along the way and get jobs to pay for it. Because... I, was say, I was thinking to myself, that is, if it ever was a young man's story, I got a brand new car and I'm going to drive cross country. That is a young man's story for real. I mean, I'm working in the fields, picking potatoes with migrant workers, man. I lasted one day. That's hard work, right? Yeah. I'm working at a gas station. I'm working at a hotel. All got to pay for this. And anyway, it's all good. That's a good question. So, so that is a very interesting uh, way to see see America, definitely. But it also is uh, that that's like the youthful ignorance oh, and uh, youthful uh, energy. <laughs> Oh my God! That, that's another this day, is man. Pre, this, this, is, this is no map quest. This is no. Uh, this is no Google Maps. No ways. You were just basically no. like seventy-five. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think a real important lesson in life is learning how to laugh at yourself. And mm -hmm. I laughed at myself then, hitchhiking because I ran out of gas, sleeping in rest stops, and like didn't even know what I was up against. Of course, as a white guy, I can go through Montana and Wyoming, heading out to Oregon. And well, have things I didn't worry about. Some, yeah, some some white. Yeah, it definitely was safer. But still, even even some white guys. That might have been before <laughs> deliverance. So I don't know. I was okay. I don't know. It's, it's still have been a lot. Yeah. You know. So um, you're the DJ at the end of the Detroit fireworks. Uh, you get to play three songs. Woodward and Jefferson. What three songs you playing? Wow. Wow. That's a that's a good question. Um, you know, growing up in the seventies. I uh, like my classic rock. Okay, so uh, rock with you. I would probably go with. Uh, oh my God, I would. Um, let I I'd go with Rolling Stones. Uh, I, I was guessing you probably would leave. Rock with and roll. Uh, uh, with that, from their first album, um, Good Times, Bad Times. Uh, I, I'd have to go with. Some, I thought that was Zeppelin with Good Times, Bad Times. You know what? It is. You yeah. got. You got me. Yeah, yeah, what was yeah. I thinking? I like. I like, I like Okay, some classic rock I like, you know, some classic rock. I'm just a music, I, I'm, I'm a music lover. I like, I like, I'd have to put in a Pink Floyd song. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, and I, I don't know, I mean, uh, that's a good question. I listen to music like 24-7. I've mm -hmm. always got my music on, different genres, so, mm -hmm. but I, would, I, I guess I'd go to what I, what I came out of the, um, you know, the classic rock. Okay. All right. So, like, yeah, if I, uh... I don't know. If I'm picking stones, I'm probably going, can't you hear me knocking? Because that's the most bluesy song I've ever got. You know, to me, to me at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was, uh, I think, I don't, I don't know. In my mind, I assume Keith Richards was not as high as he usually, there ain't no telling that. He's definitely on the list of people I'd like to meet if his presence of mind mm -hmm. could be somewhere grounded. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And last question. Uh, you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter. Who would it be? Why? Mm. Rename Woodward after one Detroiter. You know, never lived in Detroit, but um, I've grown to understand uh, the impact of Coleman Young in the city. Um, I, I think he'd be right up there as one of the very first people. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet in some ways, mm -hmm. but I think the white power structure were probably wasn't very fond of him. And, yeah. and so, but I do think he, he's uh, probably, and again, this is a white guy who's never lived in the city mm -hmm. to talk about who in Detroit you would name, name it after. I think it's people that have been part of more, I wouldn't say liberation, but more the black uh, community being able to assume some of the leadership in the city. Um, yeah, that, that would be my, I, I think, I don't know, I'd stop there. And I, I know there are preachers and there are people of faith, like Frida's dad, uh, Reverend Dr. Sampson, mm -hmm. three PhDs, preach like nobody's business. And what a man, right? And I, I know that the Charles Adams, God love PA, may you live, may you live longer, my friend. But I mean, there are some, there are some people who've been instrumental in making this city uh, a place where people have never lost hope. So, um, okay. Well, that, that all works, and uh, you'll be back, and we'll be sharing more of this story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Card. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.